Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to everyone for sharing our episodes. Our downloads are off the charts, and thanks to all of you who emailed and messaged us recently. We really love hearing from you. It's super exciting. This is our podcast six-month anniversary. Laura's been working feverishly on our new website, so check it out if you haven't already. You can sign up for a monthly newsletter there, too. And I have no shame in asking for small donations. If you click on the coffee coffee cup icon on our website, you can help Nina and I uncover expenses and upgrade our equipment. Okay, enough of the shameless pandering. Today we're discussing the lawyers who defended many of the men and women we've been covering this season. Out of the lawyers we're talking about today, I only knew one of them personally, Ronnie Chisholm. I interned at Ronnie's office when I was in 11th grade. Oh, all of those files and so much information at my fingertips. If I only knew I would be doing this podcast someday. Well, I'm a snoop, so I still would have been nosing around. Sadly, all of Ronnie's files were burnt during the fire at his home in Winchester, Mass., a few years before he passed away in 2013. You also lost out on retrieving the recordings of Richie from F. Lee Bailey. I wish I'd reached out to Bailey earlier. It was sad that he couldn't remember details about Dad, Jack Kelly, Tommy Richards, and Billy Agley Aggie clearly by the time I got to speak to him. Luckily, we have his books to reference. And I've put in a request to Northeastern University as they have Benzaquin's recordings in their archive. Maybe we can at least get access to the episode that Bailey and Dad were in. Don't hold your breath. Of course, we will be covering John Fitzgerald and his partner, Al Farisi. If you're new to the podcast, Fitzgerald has been covered in several episodes that we'll link to in the show notes. And last but not least, Joe Bolero. Nina, what about John B. Green? Should we wait until later in the season to cover him? Let's wait on John. We introduced him in our episode on the FBI's Boston office called Hoover's All-American Boys Club, but he didn't transition from FBI agent to lawyer until later in the 60s. There's so much to cover about these lawyers, but we're going to limit ourselves to brief summaries of their early lives and the cases and incidents that pertain to the men that we're covering in our podcasts. So, Nina, who do you want to start with? Let's start with F. Lee, the most famous of our attorneys, or infamous, as it were. Francis Lee Bailey Jr. was born on June 10th, 1933 in Waltham, Mass., to Francis Lee Bailey and Grace Mitchell. He attended Harvard College but dropped out to join the Navy in 1952, became a commissioned officer, and earned his naval aviator wings in 1954. Eventually, he transferred to the Marines. Upon leaving the service, he returned to Harvard and then to BU Law in 1957, even though he didn't have an undergraduate degree. His military service was considered sufficient to enroll. Bailey achieved the highest grade point average in BU's history and graduated number one in his class. He would continue to pilot his own plane and helicopter over the years. And not always sober, landing helicopters on cars and other mishaps, but he was brilliant and a great defense attorney. We should remind people here about Richie's past and how he came to know Bailey. Lara's dad, Richie, was arrested on trumped-up charges in 1957. He made a plea deal on his attorney, Joseph Sachs' advice, and ended up serving time in prison. While he was there, he met longtime bank robber Jack Kelly. Once Richie got out, Jack recruited him and some other men that they had met in prison to join him in his bank heists. 
The crew consisted of Jack and Richie, Roy Appleton, Mello Merlino, and Sonny D'Affario. Jack's old friend, Tommy Richards, was also a member of the gang. The six men pulled off the Plymouth Mail robbery in August of 1962. It was the largest cash score in history up to that point. Shortly after that, the feds began to harass the men and their families. Jack had been using John Fitzgerald as his attorney until an unsavory incident at Fitzgerald's office. We'll be telling that story later. But as a result, Jack had to find a new attorney and settled on Bailey. There's a lot more to this story, of course, so if you're new, you'll probably want to go back and catch up on those episodes. The links are in the show notes. The first tale about Bailey I want to tell is the Tchaikovsky affair, as Bailey called it in his book, The Defense Never Rests. In the cast of characters, Dad was listed as the man who the feds wanted to mastermind a kidnapping. In April of 1964, attorney Bob Barton phoned Bailey to tell him that there was a man in their office with a crazy story that he believed. A few hours later, Dad was regaling Bailey with his tale. Dad told Bailey that some narc agents gave his name to the postal inspectors and that the postals wanted Dad to kidnap Tommy Richards, beat the shit out of him, and get him to tell where the Plymouth mail robbery loot was stashed. Bailey proceeded to ask how that would help the postals, and why would guys ruthless enough to make Tommy talk give the money to the postals? Richie had been an FBI confidential informant for about two years at that point. He'd been picked up by special agent H. Paul Rico while he was running machine guns for the McLaughlins. Rico gave him a choice that wasn't really a choice, report to him, or life in prison. Richie, though, had ignored the confidential part of Rico's deal. He went straight to Jack and confessed all. A huge risk for Richie, but a bigger risk for Jack by continuing to use Richie and his crew but Jack figured that they could use the connection to Rico to their advantage against their competition and enemies. And with Richie on the inside, so to speak, Jack would have a better idea of what the feds suspected about the Plymouth mail robbery. Richie had to feed information and give up other criminals to Rico in exchange for his freedom, but Rico was only interested in Richie's drugs and weapons dealings with Ralphie LaMatina and the McLaughlins, He had no idea that Richie had graduated to armed robbery and was a protege of Jack Kelly's at that point. On September 8, 1962, Dad and two other men were arrested in the parking lot of the Wellington Circle Shopping Center in Medford, Mass. Dad's cohorts had tried to negotiate the sale of a kilo of heroin valued at $16,000 to undercover agents posing as narcotics buyers. It was part of a sting operation Dad had been working on since getting picked up by Rico several months earlier. A few weeks later, attorney Joseph Sachs was arrested as a member of a multi-million dollar international narcotics ring. As I mentioned earlier, Sachs had been Richie's defense attorney when he was falsely accused of participating in the DeSisto home invasion in 1957. The authorities alleged that Sachs and one of his longtime clients had acted as brokers who not only got wholesale outlets for the narcotics, but also took part in the actual importation of the drugs from France to Canada and then into the U.S. At one time, the gang had employed the Guatemalan ambassador to Belgium as a courier. Bail was set at $50,000 pending a hearing on October 5th. Sachs claimed he had no idea why he had been arrested, but Boston Narcotics Bureau chiefs said that Sachs had not only been active, but was a ringleader in the narcotics ring and had been for 15 years. At the bail reduction hearing the following day, Sachs' attorney, Paul T. Smith, argued that Sachs was penniless and that even if Sachs had wanted to skip town, he had nowhere to go. The judge agreed to have the bail if Sachs surrendered his passport. Sachs agreed and was freed. 
The assistant U.S. attorney called Sachs a Jekyll and Hyde character who enjoyed the reputation of respectability as, the member, as a member of the bar while actually taking part in a dope smuggling operation. He also alleged that Sachs even produced customers for the heroin. Sachs and his alleged accomplices were indicted in New York on October 5th. Eventually, Sachs was acquitted and he returned to his law practice. So that's how Richie had links to the narcotics agents and the FBI, which is why his story seemed credible. That and he was an amazing actor. He could convince anyone of anything. No question about that. Richie told Bailey that he would tell the Postals where Richards was getting worked over and they'd be close by. If the guys beating Tommy up tried to double-cross the Postals, then they'd be arrested for assault and Richie would get killed. But if they stuck with the plan, they'd get immunity and some money. Bailey questioned why Richie was telling him this story. Richie told him that he wanted to set things straight with the guys he put away and the heroin deal that he set up for the narcs and the feds before they got released. He told Bailey that he got squeezed into setting them up and he wasn't a stool pigeon, and if they heard he did the right thing by Tommy, they'd rethink taking revenge. Bailey bought Dad's wild tale and said he'd try to help. He advised Dad to play along with the postals, set up the plan in detail, and tell him everything. Curiosity got the best of Bailey, and he asked how Dad was supposed to get Tommy to talk. Dad told him the Postals directed him to get a glass cigar tube, stuff a mouse in it, place the open end against Tommy's chest, light up the closed end, and the mouse would eat through Tommy's chest to get out. Dad claimed that the Postals told him that it was an old OSS torture from World War II. The Postals told Dad it worked every time, and Dad told Bailey that it would work on them too. I'm sure Richie could have gotten the information from multiple people, but I like to imagine that it was from Jack, who was working for the OSS in the war. My fantasy, too. (laughs) The following day, Bailey recorded Richie's story while Bob Barton questioned him. For roughly a week, Bailey met with Richie, guiding him through what to say to the Postals. Bailey didn't want to wire Richie up, as he had told Bailey that they frisked him at each meeting, and after the whole Billy Aggie fiasco, the Postals were paranoid. Richie supposedly asked the Postals for a $5,000 down payment at Bailey's suggestion, but they didn't come up with the money. At last, Richie was supposed to meet a senior postal inspector in the parking lot of the Faulkner Hospital. During that meeting, the Postals promised Richie the money the following week, but they ended up cutting off contact with Richie instead. Bailey decided to rely on his favorite mode of pestering the authorities and went on the Paul Benziquin radio show with Richie to tell the tale. Although it didn't have as big an impact as the Billy Aggie radio appearance, it did send the Postals into hiding for a bit. But that didn't stop the Postals from adding Richie to their list of mail robbery suspects. Well, we both seen the FBI 302s, and Dad was already under surveillance by the Postals before making his radio debut proclaiming himself a double agent for the Feds and the Postals. According to Dad's version of the story and what was reported in the 302s, Dad concocted the Tommy kidnapping story and ran it by Jack. Jack agreed and did what he did best, perform like the actor he was. He had actually met Bailey back in early 63 when Jack retained Bailey and Dad thought he'd be the perfect tool for Jack and Dad's harassment campaign against the Postals. Bailey bought it hook, line, and sinker and in the end was nearly disbarred for that escapade, among other things. So I'd say with the utmost confidence that Dad's story that he sold Bailey was just another one of his wild schemes. I'm sure that Bailey was more than aware of the probability that it was all a lie, but went with it anyway. He was a willing participant in other escapades with Jack Kelly. 
For example, in 1963, when Bailey decided to take his new bride on a trip to Canada, one of the theories that the Postals had was that the Plymouth mail heist money was hidden up there. Bailey rang up Jack and told him that he had a plan. Jack agreed and met Bailey at the Beverly Airport. He backed his car up to the cargo door of Bailey's plane and loaded a large cardboard box onto it. Jack made sure that the postal inspectors who were tailing him had a clear view of their movements. Bailey deliberately neglected to file a flight plan. He flew low over the water so the radar couldn't track them flying up the coast of Maine, then northwest over Vermont. Halfway to Montreal, the control tower began calling out the number of his Cessna, and that's when he knew that the postals had taken the bait. When he landed, customs had no interest in his luggage, but Bailey told them that he had left a box on the locked plane. Like any good secret agent, Bailey had also added a strip of tape to the seam of the door so he'd be able to determine if anyone had tampered with the plane and gotten inside while he was gone. The next day, when he returned to the plane, it was still locked, but the tape was no longer intact. Bailey claimed this was one of a dozen hoaxes they pulled on the postals. We'll cover the lawsuits and arrest of the postals in our episode Mutual Harassment in a few weeks. The most publicized mail robbery investigation fiasco was Billy Aggie's double agent gig. After Bailey took on Jack Kelly, along with his fellow suspect Joe Tripoli, he arranged for them to take lie detector tests. Even though Jack had previously refused to take polygraphs administered by the feds, he was now willing to take one if it was impartially administered. If you want to hear more about the beginning of the investigation of the Plymouth mail robbery, listen to episode 17. The link for that is in the show notes. On December 14, 1962, they met to administer the poly. Joe Tripoli went first, but the place was so crowded with reporters wanting to catch the breaking story that they couldn't get an accurate read. Bailey declared the test inconclusive and said that they would try again the following day. They met in a suite at the Parker House Hotel. As they were wiring Tripoli for the retest, Tommy Richards walked in. This was a little over a month after his home had been torn apart by the authorities while they were looking for the mail heist loot. Tommy stated that he also wanted Bailey to be his lawyer. In the meantime, Billy Aggie had called Effley's office and been told where to find the others. He walked in just after Joe was finishing his test, which came back clean. He knew nothing. Then Bailey told the other three that they should wait to see if the Postals would agree to the independent polygraph before they went through with it, but he did ask that they all take a mini-test about any conflicts of interest between them since they all wanted him to represent them against the Postals. Of course, Red and Tommy beat the test. They had nothing against one another, but Billy flunked. Jack and the others went to Bailey's office nearly every day for the next two weeks. By the end of the month, Bailey said he approached Jack and asked him straight out, do you think Billy might be a spy for the Postals? Anything's possible, Jack replied, but it seems funny they'd put him on the flyer if he really wasn't a suspect. That could just be a cover, Bailey said. Billy flunked the lie test cold. You didn't tell me that before, Jack said. You mean the bastard's against us? Could be, Bailey replied. But if he is, we might be able to work it to our advantage. Let's try something. Of course, Jack already knew all of this, but wasn't going to let Bailey know how and why or how long he had been plotting to turn the tables on Billy and the Postals. Bailey reassembled the full group. Gentlemen, he said, I want all of you to be extremely careful not to get so provoked at these post office clowns that you get into any physical fights with them. That would be very bad. They carry guns and you might get hurt. I'm going to give each of you a cheap and very simple camera. 
Anytime you see a postal inspector near you, take his picture and keep snapping until he leaves. This may give you some peace and give us enough evidence to get an injunction against these sons of bitches. Just bring all the film to me. I repeat, do not get provoked into fights. Any of you could be, get shot at any time. Bailey turned to Billy, especially you. What do you mean, Billy said? Why me? Bailey pulled out a copy of the poster that offered a $50,000 reward for the arrest and conviction of the robbers. Bailey told Billy, there's a phrase in this reward offer that provides that any robber who is killed while resisting arrest will be deemed convicted for the purposes of the reward. In other words, the easiest way to get the money is to kill you. This cuts out waiting for the trial or risking the possibility of acquittal. You, Billy, are especially a likely target. You have a record for armed robbery and have carried a gun in the past. So whereas the others are not considered dangerous, you are. Anyone could gun you down and then claim that they shot you when you were about to shoot the ham. The next morning, Billy was waiting at the door when Bailey arrived at his office and confessed everything. I've got something to tell you, he said to Bailey. I've been working with the postal people, steering them on Tommy and Kelly and Tripp and some other guys. They've been paying me every week, 75 bucks, and they said I'd get a big reward if some, anything broke. Billy unbuttoned his jacket, loosened his tie, and began. A few days after the robbery, he said, some postal inspectors came to me and said I could help them. They said I was a convicted bank robber and probably could give them some good leads about who might have done the Plymouth job. I told them I wasn't interested in being an informer, even if I knew something, which I didn't. They told me that they could go to my parole board and get me violated, so I would have to go back in the can. But if I cooperated, I could get some cash, maybe a whole lot of it. All I had to do was give them some names. I didn't want to go back to the can, so I agreed. I figured I'd give them some bullshit, and when they didn't get nowhere, they'd leave me alone. They asked me to take a lie detector test so they'd know I wasn't involved myself. I took it, and they said I passed and gave me 50 bucks. Then they asked me if John Kelly's might have been in on the job. I said, sure, he could have done it. He's smart. So they asked me if Kelly knew anyone who didn't have a record and could hold the money without being suspected. And I had once met, met, the, ugh, I had once, met, once met this guy, Richards, with Kelly, except that at that time his name was Bagdaglian. He had a steady job, as far as I knew, and no record, so I gave them his name. I also mentioned Tripoli, who used to be in business with Kelly selling used cars. They put taps on all their phones. They would play the tapes for me to see if I could tell who was on the other end of the line. Bailey replied, if Kelly and Tripp and Tom were the guys who pulled the robbery, they would also be the kind of guys who might get wise to you and buy you some cement shoes. Did you ever think of that? Of course, said Billy. I had some other names I could have given, but those names have guns. Kelly and the others are just clowns. I knew they wouldn't do anything. If you're not afraid of them, Bailey said, why did you decide to tell me all of this? It's the goddamn poster, Billy said. I could get shot in the face on account of that thing. The postals are so goddamn stupid. You have no idea how stupid they are. You know, one time they told me they didn't know anything about robbery cases, and I was running this investigation because I was an expert. How do you like that? Me, the expert of the investigation. Billy Bailey said, you have done your friends a grave injustice. I think you should do all you can to repair the damage. Sure, said Billy. What do you want me to do? Bailey replied, you have spied on us, and that was a grave transgression. I think the only fair way that you can repair the damage you've done is to do a little counter-spying. Billy asked, you mean I should keep working for the Postals, but really working for you, right? Exactly, said Bailey. Billy agreed, saying the Postals would never catch on. They're too goddamn stupid.
And he was right. Bailey hooked Billy up with a wire of his own and sent him to see Postal Inspector Wheeler, who was living next door to him. Billy's mission this time was to get Wheeler to repeat the story about the $100,000 reward for Tommy's head and other extrajudicial activities the Postals had been involved in over the course of their so-called investigation. Billy had the intel Bailey needed within five conversations. In addition, Bailey told Billy that he wanted the money Billy was getting every week from the Postals. I'll give you dollar for dollar, but I want what you get. Billy agreed and they shook on it. On December 28th, Bailey, Jack, Tommy, and Tripoli went on the radio and the following evening on TV. Bailey laid out the charges against the authorities, putting them on the defense. They each stated that the government had offered them $250,000 for identifying the holdup gang. The authorities denied this allegation, saying that the only offer on the table was for up to $200,000 and was open to anyone who supplied information. We'll get more into what happened to Billy Aggie in episode 36. Bailey would go on to defend Jack and his co-defendants in their 1967 trial for the Plymouth mail robbery, but you'll have to wait until June for that episode. The next attorney on our list is a former associate of Bailey's, Joseph Valero Sr. Joe Valero was born on May 21st, 1928, and grew up in Chelsea where his father, James, owned a grocery store. He was the oldest child and the only boy with five younger sisters. Joe decided in high school that he wanted to be a criminal lawyer, taking his inspiration from Perry Mason. While working in his family's grocery store, he attended Boston University's law school's night program. In 1950, he started out as a public defender, earning $1,800 a year. During his three years as a public defender, he worked on 3,000 cases. Through his experience as a public defender, he honed his skills in representing people accused of murder. In his five-decade-long career, he represented over 500 clients who faced murder trials. His nickname was the Dean of the Defense Bar. One of Bolero's most famous clients was Henry Tamilio during the 1968 William Afeo murder trial. Bolero's daughter, Julianne, would go on to represent the Tamilio estate and the Lamoni family in their wrongful conviction civil suit against the government in the Teddy Deegan murder case. Only a few more weeks until Teddy Deegan's first episode. Joe's cousins, Rocco and Salvatore Valero, were on the opposite side of the law, and Joe would find himself defending his cousins in a murder trial of their own. In February of 1963, Rocco and his twin brother, Salvatore, were arrested on murder charges, and their two brothers, Frank and Joseph, not the attorney, were taken into protective custody. The authorities said that three hitmen from New York with ties to Elmer Trigger Burke were in Boston to kill the Valero brothers in retaliation for the killing of Mrs. Toby Wagner and her two-year-old son. Elmer was the hitman who had allegedly been brought in to kill Specky O'Keefe, but failed. However, it did get Specky in the hands of the feds, so I guess it worked out for somebody. Here's a twist in that case. Rocco Bolero had been living with Toby and her two young children since the beginning of 1962. Her husband was in the can for armed robbery. By November, Rocco was also in the can for stealing furs. Toby went to visit Rocco and smuggled in hacksaw blades to help him escape. In January of 1963, Rocco managed to saw through the bars and make his way to the Chelsea apartment that Toby had rented for them. But on February 1st, Toby's husband, Bernard Wagner, was released from prison. When she didn't return home as usual, Rocco went looking for her. During his search, Rocco came across Bernard. They argued, and when Bernard and his friend tried to leave, Rocco shot at his car. Rocco believed that Toby was being held against her will. He called their apartment, and she was there and told her to wait for him. 
Little did he know she had called the police. When he, Salvatore, and a third man, Albert Chiacco, arrived, a gunfight ensued. In the crossfire, Toby and her son were killed. In the aftermath, Joe Valero took his cousin Salvatore's case. Joseph convinced Rocco to take a plea agreement, a decision he would later say he regretted. Rocco pleaded guilty to murder and Salvatore and Albert to manslaughter. In 2002, Rocco appealed his case, saying he didn't plead out of his own free will, but rather under pressure from his family. Joe Valero confirmed Rocco's statement and stated that it was a mistake, as if he hadn't taken the plea, he would have been paroled by then. Rocco passed away in January 2012. Let that be a lesson. Don't plead out. Amen to that. Joe Bolero's clients included the Angelo brothers. In December of 1964, when all six of them appeared in front of a grand jury in the tax case involving one of Jerry Angelo's companies, Huntington Realty Trust. And Jerry was hamming it up for the cameras, fixing his tie and asking the journalist to say something to make him smile. But he went stone-faced when he thought someone might be recording him. Once he was assured that there was no sound, he went back to saying cheese and posing for them. What was it with him in the recordings? Meanwhile, he was on tape every day, either at his office or Raymond's. And don't forget his obsession with people with hearing aids. He thought everyone was listening, but little did he know they were. What a moron. The crimes are of Boston. And even after the first wiretap, he still didn't learn his lesson and ended up yapping into a second wiretap in the 80s. In December of 1966, Joe Bolero defended William Breen, a former police officer. Breen had been charged with armed robbery of the Essex County Bank in Lynn. The robbery netted $49,953. Breen pleaded guilty to charges of planning the heist for two Canadian nationals. Originally, Ritchie and Pro Lerner had been suspects in that robbery. The following April, Joe took on Frank Aredo as a client. He was charged in the gangland slaying of Joseph Lanzi. We'll be covering that murder and others in the hit parade of 1967 later this season. And as we mentioned earlier, Joe would go on to defend Henry Tamilio in the Willie Maffeo trial, which we covered briefly in The Hill Part 2. We'll be revisiting it again in more detail in the future. During the Plymouth mail robbery trial of 1967, Joe represented Sonny D'Aferio's wife, Patricia. The trial will also have its own episode. Joe was juggling multiple cases at the same time. He was also in court defending Jerry Angelo's co-defendants against murder charges. If you want to hear more about that case, listen to episode 23. Just like in Henry Tamilio's case, the star witness was Joe Barboza, the king of perjury himself. My favorite quote of Joe Bolero's is, Law is a 24-hour-a-day proposition. You just never get away from it. Joe's clients and his cases will also be featured in Season 2. Let's move on to Ronnie Chisholm. Like Bailey and Bolero, he too shared many of the same clients, including Jerry and Julo. Also like Bolero, Ronnie started out as a public defender after graduating from Suffolk Law in 1958 in the top 10 of his class. His first clients ranged from arsonists to thieves and participants in Russian roulette, while still a public defender, he began teaching law at Portia Law School and would later go on to teach at his alma mater. In 1964, he was appointed as the assistant to the head of the Massachusetts Defenders Committee. Ronnie would remain at the PD office until 1967. During that time, he defended over 4,000 people, 100 of those in front of the Supreme Judicial Court. Of the 13 murder trials he worked on, not one of his clients received the death sentence or life in prison up to that point in his career. 
Ronnie was born on March 4, 1930, to Ronald Chisholm and Mary Peterson in Stoneham, Mass. He would later move to Winchester, where he was active in local politics throughout his life. After he left the public defender's office, he began to take on more notorious clients, including bank robber and escape artist Teddy Green. If you listen to our Thanksgiving bonus episode, you might recall that Teddy was one of the leaders of the Cherry Hill Riot at the Charlestown State Prison. Ronnie was also defended another famous escape artist, Frank Martin Feeney. He earned a reputation as a tough opponent. During a perjury hearing involving a witness in the murdery trial of Margaret Sylvester, Ronnie got into a heated exchange with ADA Pino. The judge called a recess and told them both that he was going to get some boxing gloves and the court could watch them duke it out. We mentioned Margaret in last week's episode as she was one of the 18 people killed in the Boston area in 1964. Jimmy Flemmy was never brought to trial for the murder of Margaret Sylvester, even though the feds knew he was her killer. Years later, Johnny Moderano would recount the events of Margaret's murder. His brother, James Moderano, was tried as an accessory after the fact, along with Andrew Pappas. Andrew was acquitted, but James was found guilty of both the accessory after the fact and assault with a shoe. While defending two inmates accused of causing a riot at Walpole State Prison in 1967, Ronnie attempted to gain permission for Georgie McLaughlin to testify on behalf of one of his clients, but his request was denied. Later that year, Ronnie and Joe Bolero worked side by side in the William Maffeo murder trial, Bolero defending Henry Tamilio and Ronnie Chisholm defending Ronnie Cassesso. It would be several years later when Ronnie would become a defense lawyer in the Rudy Maffeo murder trial, but you have to wait until season two for that. During the William Maffeo murder trial, Bolero, Chisholm, and Raymond Patriarca's attorney, Curran, had the opportunity to question Joe Barboza. If you want to hear more about Curran, listen to episode 21. The following month, Bolero and Ronnie were back in court together in the DeSiglio murder trial against Jerry Angiulo, Bernard Zena, Mario Lepore, and Richard DeVincent. Again, they had the opportunity to face Joe Barboza. Ronnie was representing Jerry and Bolero, his co-defendants. Under questioning by Ronnie Chisholm, Barboza said that he and Chico Amico went to see Jerry several days after the murder. Barboza claimed that Jerry told him that it was better that they took care of DeSiglio themselves rather than involving the office, referring to Raymond Patriarca. Under questioning, Barboza said the first person he called after hearing that DeSiglio had been killed was Officer Fawcett, but that he made the call anonymously. Jerry and his three co-defendants were eventually acquitted. The trial against Tamilio, Patriarca, and Cassesso continued into March. Upon cross-examination of Barboza, Ronnie grilled him about the information he was feeding to FBI Special Agents Rico and Condon. During that exchange, Barboza admitted he was being protected along with his wife by the U.S. Marshals in an undisclosed location. Ronnie Chisholm would later defend Ronnie Cassesso in the Teddy Deegan murder trial in the summer of 1968, facing DA Garrett Byrne. You might remember Garrett Byrne from our Brinks episode since he was the lead prosecutor in that trial. That case was his moment to shine since the federal statute of limitations had expired and only state charges could be brought against the alleged perpetrators. Garrett Henry Byrne was born on November 29, 1897 in Roxbury, Massachusetts to Simon Byrne and Mary Ellis. His parents were both born in Newfoundland. Garrett attended Mechanic Arts High School, Burdett College, Boston University, and Suffolk Law School. He served in the United States Navy during World War I. He passed the bar in 1923 and began practicing law following his graduation the next year. He almost immediately got into politics and served in the State House from 1924 to 1928. 
1933, Byrne joined the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, where he developed a close relationship with the DA, William J. Foley. Byrne tried a number of murder cases during his two decades as an ADA. Beginning in 1942, he exclusively handled grand jury work. District Attorney Foley died on December 1, 1952, and on December 17, the governor appointed Byrne to succeed him. Following his appointment, Byrne gave up his private law practice, making him the first district attorney in Massachusetts not to have any outside business or professional activities. He served as DA until 1978 when he was ousted in the primaries. Byrne's cases are too many to list, but he'll be returning as a prosecutor in most of the cases we'll be covering throughout this season and the next. Our next attorney is good old John Fitzgerald, everybody's favorite. He was born on April 6, 1932 in Somerville, Mass. to John E. Fitzgerald Sr. and Ann L. Shaw. Fitzgerald served as a captain in the Army from 1954 to 1956 in Korea. He went on to graduate from Boston University Law School in 1960. Nina, tell us some of Fitzgerald's tales. Jack had been using John Fitzgerald as his attorney, but fired him after an unsavory incident at Fitzgerald's office. He arrived for their meeting about what legal action could be taken to get the postals off his back. But when Jack walked into the office, he saw Dorothy Barshard fleeing in some state of undress. Looking across the room, he saw Joe Barboza holding on to Fitzgerald's ankles as he held him out the window. To relieve the tension in the room, Jack made a joke and got Barboza to free Fitzgerald, but Jack was through. He wasn't going to get wrapped up with someone on Barboza's enemy list. Gangsters were bad news in Jack's book. Quote, the only place you find them is in prison or the cemetery, and I don't want to go with them, unquote. Barboza plopped Fitzgerald on the floor and asked if Jack had seen Dorothy. Jack proceeded to tell him that she ran down the hall. Then in 1965, Fitzgerald took on Georgie McLaughlin's case. Georgie had been charged with the murder of William Sheridan. Before the case went to trial, he passed Georgie's case to his partner, Al Farisi, and instead defended Spike O'Toole at the trial, who had been charged as an accessory after the fact. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, you can hear more about Georgie's trial in that one. The following year, Fitzgerald was representing Nikki Femia, and Farisi was representing Joe Barboza. Garrett Byrne begged for no bail, but the judge refused, saying that he couldn't legally hold the men without it. But he set bail at $100,000 for both Barboza and Femia. Barboza was already out on bail two times over at this point. Fitzgerald and Farisi argued that their client's bail should be reduced. Farisi said that Barboza was employed by an insurance company and a cafe in Nantasket and that he needed to get back to work. But the judge disagreed and both were sent back to Charles Street Jail. If you want to hear more about that case, listen to episode 24. In November of 1967, John E. Fitzgerald told FBI Special Agents Rico and William Welby that Dorothy Barchard had received a phone call in which the caller indicated that if she did not stop associating with that guy, she and her children could be killed. To make matters worse for Fitzgerald, his wife had received a phone call from a stranger who told her that Fitzgerald was keeping Dorothy. Fitzgerald also stated that he had been told that if he would help them weaken Joe Barboza, they would have Spike O'Toole killed at Concord, where O'Toole was incarcerated for his role in harboring Georgie McLaughlin. The feds asked Fitzgerald who had threatened him, but he refused to reveal the person's name. However, he informed them that he had given the identity of this party to Jimmy O'Toole, and he will probably be in trouble when O'Toole comes out of jail. 
Fitzgerald also told the feds that when he was checking around as to who had made the telephone calls to his wife and to Dorothy, the office, meaning the mafia, had tried to lead him to believe that it was O'Toole's friends, but that he had checked with O'Toole and O'Toole had told him that it wasn't him. And then Fitzgerald tried to blame his partner, Al Farisi, for his troubles, all but accusing Al of ratting to the mob. More on Al in a moment. At 5.15 p.m. on Tuesday, January 30th, 1968, Fitzgerald left work and walked about a block behind the law office that he shared with Farisi and Everett to where he'd parked Barboza's black and gold James Bond-style car. He started the car up before he'd closed the door all of the way. This fact saved his life. His body was torn by the explosive force of three sticks of dynamite, each 15 inches long and weighing six pounds, which had been inserted with a coil next to the firewall behind the engine. Shrapnel from the bomb hit surrounding homes and a chunk of the car was hurled into the wall of the Church of the Immaculate Conception. An explosives expert said it had only taken about 30 seconds to install the bomb. The burglar alarm in the car had been disengaged. Fitzgerald, who was conscious from the time of the explosion until he was put under anesthesia, demanded that Special Agents Rico and Condon come to see him. The theory has always been that the mob was behind the bombing in an effort to scare Barboza and keep him quiet because that's what the feds and Fitzgerald claimed. But the man was keeping Dorothy Barshard and driving Barboza's car and Barboza was stuck out in protective custody like a caged animal. Frankie Salemi later alleged that Fitzgerald was also running Joe Barboza's loan shark operation out of his law office in Everett. And of all Salemi's claims, that seems to be a more credible one. Three strikes and you're out. But who actually planted the bomb for Joe Barboza is still a mystery. It wasn't Salemi and Stevie Flemmy, though, I can tell you that. Even though Salemi was later convicted and did 12 years for it. It was done by a professional who really meant to kill Fitzgerald, not just scare him. The claim that the caller offered to bump off Spike O'Toole is what drives it home for me, that it was about Dorothy and not about pressuring Barboza not to testify. Special Agents Rico and Condon contacted Fitzgerald at Mass General Hospital, where Fitzgerald was recovering from injuries sustained in the car bombing. Fitzgerald said he had come in contact with many criminals whom he believed were all now his enemies. Fitzgerald told the agents that he was going to write a letter to Barboza telling him that because he lost his leg in the bombing, Barboza should turn on these people and provide testimony that would send them all to jail. Rico told Fitzgerald that he would prefer that Barboza testify about whatever he could without Barboza being pressured into testifying against specific individuals. What? Bullshit. They should have said only if it's the ones that the feds wanted him to testify against. Rigo said in his report, if we feel at a later date that Barron is holding out, we then may ask Fitzgerald's assistance, but we do not want Barron to be motivated by revenge. Fitzgerald will relocate to South Dakota with his family and go on to become a judge, but his partner, Al Farisi, stayed behind. Alfred P. Farisi was born on January 9, 1914 to Antonio Farisi and Adeline Biacci in South River, New Jersey. By the 1920s, the family had moved to Saugus, Massachusetts. He attended Boston College High School before going to University of Alabama, followed by Alabama Law School. In his decades-long career, he defended 300 men accused of murder, including Georgie McLaughlin and Joe Barboza. His most famous trait was his memory, which he used to confuse those he was cross-examining. And he was, of course, John Fitzgerald's partner in their law practice in Everett. 
1972, his workload had made him the bane of the bench as he was juggling 89 defendants at one time. Like Ronnie Chisholm, he was also involved in local politics. Fariz's career had a bit of a bumpy start. He was cited for contempt in 1953. According to Ruth Peel, the wife of the man he was defending on armed robbery charges, Farisi approached her in the hallway of the courthouse and told her that her husband would be in danger of being stabbed in prison if he insisted on testifying. The judge sentenced Farisi to a year in prison, but after a year-long appeal, Farisi was cleared of all charges. In addition to Barboza, Georgie, and Nikki Femia, his client list included Roy French, who we'll be discussing in the Teddy Deegan episodes. Following the bombing of Fitzgerald, Farisi said he lived in fear for years. There will be more to come about these lawyers, but for now, we're bidding you farewell. Sorry, guys, if there's noise in the background, the dog is running crazy, and I apologize. Next week, we're going to Winter Hill. We'll be reprising Jimmy and Stevie Fleming and their cohorts, Johnny Motorano, Frank Salemi, and Howie Winter. Hope you listen in. Bye. Bye. Double Deal. True stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.